This morning we'll be in Psalm chapter 7. And Ben has been doing a wonderful job showing us Christ in the Psalms. And just think about that. The opportunity that we have week in and week out to see Christ in His Word. What privilege we have to see our Lord. Not just through someone telling you a story. Not just through somebody speaking about Him. Not even just through an eyewitness. But God's own Word and what He desired us to see in Christ through the Scripture. And Ben's been doing a wonderful job, Psalm 1 through 6, showing us Christ as the fulfillment of David's life. And just as a review, Psalm 1 and 2 become kind of a paradigm for the Psalms. And what I mean by that is Psalm 1 talks about the righteous and the wicked. From the beginning of the worship of Israel... From the beginning of the Psalter, God is saying to His people, I know who you are. Saying, I know you who dwell in righteousness, and I know you who dwell in wickedness. As you enter my temple, there's no games. And in Psalm 2, we see Yahweh's sworn protection and love for the Davidic throne. Psalm 2 became a coronation psalm that they would sing whenever kings would be coronated, whenever they'd be made king over Israel. And Psalm 2 is a continuation of Psalm 1, where righteousness is not just a general principle to be held, but it's seen as tied to the throne of David, or supposed to be. And as we know from the New Testament, Christ, in fulfilling this perfect anointed one of God, would not only perfectly fulfill the coronation of the Davidic king, but the righteousness demanded by Psalm 1. And that's what Ben explained to us a couple weeks ago. But through the psalm, something important to remember is we have a ton of talk about righteousness. We have a ton of talk about wickedness the righteous man and the wicked man. And that's because the Psalms are worship to God based on this paradigm where the righteous worship righteously and the wicked sing praises. They rejoice in their own works. They rejoice in what they have accomplished trying to hide themselves in the state of their own soul from the Lord. And throughout the Psalms, you see David, as Yahweh's anointed one from Psalm 2, crying out to God that righteousness would be established, that he would be forgiven of his sin, that he would not be a wicked man. And so from Psalm 3 through Psalm 6, David is praying and singing through the story of Absalom whenever his son turned against him. David failed as a father, in many ways, and this led to Absalom's rebellion against him. David flees from Absalom in Psalms 3 through 6. You see David reflecting back on Psalm 1 and 2, where he's praying to God, if I have done wickedness, if I have failed, 
judge me. We'll see that in Psalm 7. Those who fail, those who do wickedness, judge them. Restore your anointed. Let all those who come against your anointed perish in the way. And Psalm 7 continues that, but it's a song that David alone sang. It was probably just sung by one person. And he's in the midst of fleeing from Absalom. And he runs into a man who slanders him in his own situation. And so we'll read Psalm 7 from the superscription, so that the little words at the top, through verse 17. A Shigion of David, which he sang to Yahweh concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. O Yahweh, my God, in you I have taken refuge. Save me from all those who pursue me and deliver me, lest he tear my soul like a lion, rending me in pieces while there is none to deliver. O Yahweh, my God, if I have done this, if there is injustice in my hands, if I have rewarded evil to him who is at peace with me, or have plundered my adversary without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. And let him trample my life down to the ground and cause my glory to dwell in the dust. Selah. Arise, O Yahweh, in your anger. Lift up yourself against the fury of my adversaries and arouse yourself for me. You have appointed judgment. Let the congregation of the peoples encompass you and over them return on high. Yahweh judges the peoples. Give justice to me, O Yahweh, according to my righteousness and my integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous. For the righteous God tests the hearts and minds. My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and prepared it. He has also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, he travails with wickedness, and he conceives mischief and gives birth to falsehood. He has dug a pit and hollowed it out, and has fallen into the hole which he made. His mischief will return upon his own head, and his violence will descend upon his own skull. I will give thanks to Yahweh according to his righteousness, and I'll sing praise to the name of Yahweh Most High. So here, David is fleeing from Absalom. And the little introduction at the top explains our situation to us, and unfortunately, we have no idea what this is talking about. <laughs> this is similar to a story that we'll talk about in a minute, but as far as the, who Cush is, we have no idea. As far as when he slandered David, we have no idea. And so the outline of this psalm is verse 1 through 5, you have a righteous prayer. Verse 6 through 11, a righteous God. 12 through 16, righteous judgment. And then verse 17, righteous worship. And this is very similar to when David was slandered by a man named Shimei, or Shimei, depending on how you prefer to pronounce that. In 2 Samuel 16, David is leaving Jerusalem, 
And there's a man who's a Benjamite. He's one of the descendants of Saul. He's from the family of Saul. And he begins to throw rocks and kick dust and spit at David. And he accuses him of evil against Saul's house. And he says, the reason why your son is trying to kill you is because you have wronged the house of Saul, the Lord's anointed. So your sin against Saul is the reason why your son has sinned against you. And David, he's on a horse, and one of his men say, why don't we just cut off his head? <laughs> his response is immediately, let's judge this man. Why would he slander the king? And David's response is really amazing. If you would turn to 2 Samuel 16 real quick. I'm sure humbled by his current situation. In verse 10 of chapter 16 of 2 Samuel. <coughs> it says, but the king, that is David, said, what have I to do with you, O sons of Zeruiah? That's the man who wanted to cut off Shimei's head. If he curses, and if Yahweh has told him, curse David, then who shall say, why have you done so? Then David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my son who came forth from my body seeks my life. How much more now this Benjamite? Let him alone and let him curse, for Yahweh has told him. Perhaps Yahweh will look on my affliction and return good to me instead of his cursing this day. Verse 14. Then the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary, and he refreshed himself there at the hillside. So we have a similar situation in 2 Samuel, where David is praying to the Lord, he's seeking the Lord, and he's going about his business, running from his son, who has somewhat gained all of the approval of Jerusalem, where he's gone into Jerusalem. He said, if only they would appoint me as a judge. If only I would rule, because I make better decisions than my father. And the people went after him. And so David flees, knowing that he would be in trouble. And while he's waiting, this man begins to curse him. And in the Psalter... In Psalm 7, where we're at, it's likely that if this is not referring to Shimei, that Cush was simply another Benjamite that David found along the way that was saying the same thing. And, and as we'll see from the psalm, his response in 2 Samuel 16 is very similar to his response in Psalm 7. And so it's helpful to read that. It's helpful to understand that context, if it is Cush, if Shimei is Cush, and that's just another name for him. But we can't say for sure. What we can say is that at this point in David's life, as Yahweh's anointed king, as the one who Yahweh had sworn to protect not only him but his descendants and protect his throne, if he follows the Lord in righteousness and if he doesn't wrong his sons, or Israel, or his neighbors. He is being slandered falsely. Where it's as if the nations were all coming against the Lord's anointed. Where in David, Yahweh's cherished man, 
men have begun to lie and have begun not only to steal the kingdom away, supposedly from the Lord, but they begin to lie against David and say there's good reason David's not king anymore. Have you ever been falsely accused of something? Has it ever been something that just goes on and on and on and there's absolutely nothing that you can say to somebody to change their mind? Where there, there are accusations that are, just seem wild to you. On the other hand, there are times when we're accused or slandered against where we're slandered because of partial truths. Because there are things that we have done that have not been godly, that have not been our best, so to speak. And so though people may lie, there's a little hint of truth in what they're lying about. And this is true in David's case. Because David did not send any men to kill descendants of Saul, but under David's watch, men did kill descendants of Saul. Cush and Shimei did not come out of nowhere saying, David killed the descendants of Saul. Those descendants were killed by David's men. So though David played no part in that, there's a sense in which people associated him with it. So have you ever been there? Where you've been accused of something that's not really true, but you could see where they get it from? Because I have. And I've failed many times. And the way David seeks the Lord at this time is truly amazing. Not only his response in 2 Samuel 16, but his response here in verses 1 through 5. A righteous prayer. He says that he takes refuge in the Lord. And he's praying for salvation. And he hearkens back to his time as a shepherd. And he prays that God would save him lest his soul, that all of him, all of who he is, be torn like a lion. And that if anybody was watching, and if anybody was around, they still wouldn't be able to help. Because David knows that the Lord is the only one who can deliver him in this situation. But verses 3 to 5 show David's truth and David's desire for justice to be done. He prays that the Lord would let him be destroyed. That he would let these accusations go. That if the Lord has told Shimei or Cush to curse, then the Lord has done it. That if there is injustice in him, and if he has done wrong, that he ought to be judged accordingly. It's very difficult to pray like that. It's very difficult whenever you're in the midst of seemingly unjust judgment or slander from others to pray to the Lord not only would you rid me of this circumstance but if I deserve it please let it continue 
if I deserve this situation, let me be judged. And at the end it says, Selah. Possibly a pause. Where Yahweh, excuse me, David has prayed to Yahweh. And he's given his case. He said, please deliver me. But if I have done this, let me be judged. And he pauses. The notes change. The mood of the song changes. There's a sense in which David then leaves it in the hands of God. He's not trying to explain why God should judge him well or judge him with condemnation. He just 50-50. If I have been righteous, judge me in righteousness. If I have been wicked, judge me in righteousness. And he leaves it there. And that tells us that in his heart, his prayer was not simply for deliverance. His prayer wasn't just that his circumstances would change. His prayer was not, Lord, help me because I don't like where I am in life. Give me a new job because I don't like the one that I have. Give me a new boss because I don't like the one that I have. Change my financial circumstances because I don't like the ones that I'm in. David recognizes here that God has dealt him what he has dealt him. That in everything, our prayer ought to be, Lord, be righteous in your judgment and faithful to who you are. Don't count me out because the sake of your name is what we should care for. Yahweh's judgment and righteousness in dealing with men as he ought is what we should care for. Even us when we pray. So Lord, would you help us? I'm not happy where I am. Help me to be happy. I don't like the situation I'm in. Help me to rejoice in you. I don't like being slandered or spoken wrongly of. Lord, help me be above reproach. That changes our prayers. After this pause in verse 6 through 11... David describes God, and he describes his verdict. He describes God as angry. He asks God to rise up against his enemies. And he says me and I over and over and over again. And seemingly when you read 6 through 11, you kind of see... There's a little boldness in saying, Lord, arise, arouse yourself for me, for my sake. Rise up for me. And if that's not bold enough, verse 8, Give justice to me, O Yahweh, according to my righteousness and my integrity that is in me. 
This is not perfection. David's not saying, I'm perfect. I've never sinned in my life. This is after his sin with Bathsheba, after Psalm 51. He recognizes he's a sinner. But the Lord has judged his case. And he has not sinned in the way that Shimei and Cush have slandered him. He has not done wrong. But what's important here is to recognize that he leaves the judgment to God. And he leaves the vengeance in 2 Samuel 16 and in Psalm 7 to God. He doesn't then tell his servant that wanted to cut off Shimei's head, okay, now go do it because Shimei's lying. He prays that the Lord would rise up in his anger. And he paints him as a warrior, as this warrior judge over all the nations, like he is in Psalm 2, where the nations rage and he laughs at them. Where men and peoples come against David, they come against God's anointed and the Lord has no fear of them. He simply laughs at them. And here the Lord is angry. And it's important also to understand that our God is not just a God who hands out principles or platitudes. He doesn't say, this is righteousness, this is wickedness. And then he's uninvolved. God is actively involved in approving righteousness and condemning wickedness. He's painted as emotionally responding to this slander. The Lord is angry against David's persecutors. He's not simply saying, they're condemned in my sight. I'll condemn them on the last day. In verse 11 it says, he's a God who has indignation every day. That is to say that as long as the wicked are against him, and as long as the wicked are unrepentant, God is angry with them. And God continues to be angry with them. Because he's a righteous God. And this righteous God rises up in righteous anger against the unrighteous. Where men who are walking in sin and who are walking against the Lord and His anointed, and are lying, don't just get a paper from God saying what will happen to them. But God is angry with them, and painted here as a warrior judge, who's not only judged them, but will fight against them on behalf of His King. says in verse 9, the righteous God tests the hearts and minds. My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. That's a fearful thing. This is not saying God sits back in heaven and he sees what's right and wrong on the earth. This is God actively testing hearts and minds. That God is at work 
and justification and condemnation. Where men who run against God are being tested. And men who run to Him are being tested. And all those who do not take refuge in the Lord. And all those who have not taken refuge in His anointed cause anger in God. And this is important for us to understand. Because we don't serve a God who hands out statements. We don't serve a God who hands out a verdict that we get to see at the very end. We don't serve a God who has set things in motion and will only be involved again on the last day. We serve a God who sees your every thought and who sees your every sin and who sees man in his failure and is angry with him every day. This is a daily involvement of God. And who alone could judge men in such a way? Do you have the right? Do I have the right? Does our righteousness grant us a peek into every man's thoughts and get to declare a verdict over them? God alone can judge in such a way. God tests the hearts and minds according to his own righteousness. The man who's planted by streams of water and meditating on the word of the Lord daily, whom God has chosen, will be declared righteous. And those who sit in the seat of scoffers and stand in the way of sinners will not stand or be established in the congregation of the righteous, but their way will perish, and there is no hope for the wicked, because God is angry every day. And some men say that, you know, this is, a, this is an Old Testament picture of God, where there's much wrath spoken of about God, and, you know, the there's kind of a shift whenever we get to Christ. And I, I could go pretty much anywhere in the New Testament, but what I want to do is I want to go two places. First, I want to go to John chapter 3. Usually this comment is made in the same vein as John 3. For we all know, 3.16, For God so loved the world, that is, the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. Praise God. And as a Calvinist, or whatever you are, don't throw that in the trash. <laughs> That's a wonderful truth that God came, that God sent His Son to save the world. We should preach that. We should love that. And we should herald that. Don't just talk about the wrath of God. Don't just talk about the sovereignty of God. 
talk about all of those things, including the love of God for the world. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. There is a sense in which God desires men to repent. That God loved the world. But in chapter 3, verse 36... Our comment is made, well, because of that, we see, we see a different picture of God. Chapter 3, 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. That's continually. This is not a picture of God putting away his wrath so that he could send Christ. This is a statement that the wrath of God rests on all who do not repent and believe in the Son. That God is continually storing up wrath for men who refuse to repent. And in Romans, the second text, we probably have the longest explanation of the wrath of God in chapter 1. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed, and excuse me, let me say this really quick. In verse 17 of Romans, Paul says, the righteous will live by faith. And you'd think he's about to go into the gospel. He's about to explain justification. He's about to go into chapter 4. But it takes him two more chapters to get to justification. Because he has to explain something else. You can't have justification without the wrath of God. And you can't have the vindication of God on sinful men without explaining the condition of sinful men. And so in chapter 1, verse 18, it says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, both his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. And if you go on to chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore you are without excuse, O man, everyone who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you presume this, O man, who passes judgment on those who practice such things and does the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? That is, his not destroying you now gives you opportunity to repent. We were all children of wrath. We were all accused rightly and under the judgment of God. And we are saved from that judgment. So this is not just an Old Testament idea. This is not just 
a New Testament idea, which, by the way, it's the same Bible, you know. This is throughout a description of the same God. This is the God that you and I worship. I hope it is. That we worship a God who is angry with wickedness every day. Who is constantly at war with sin and sinners. He doesn't just hate the sin. He hates sinners and is angry with them every day. Do you understand that? That God in all His glory, in all His heavenly worship, in all that He is, in His omniscience and omnipotence, that He not only sees your actions, but that He has a response to them. That He is actively against those who walk in unrighteousness. And this is part of David's song. He's singing about that. It's not because he's emo or because he likes punk rock. He's singing about this because this is his God. And he is worshiping Yahweh because this is who he is. When you sing to God, do you understand that as you sing? That he is not just a God who loved the world, but a God of wrath, rightly judging those who do not believe in the Son. Verse 12 through 16, we have righteous judgment. And they're back and forth. If you've read commentaries on Psalm 7, you'll see throughout church history there's been a here and there of commentators like Calvin or Sproul or MacArthur or Luther or Spurgeon, whoever. In verse 12 when it says, if he or if a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. It's kind of confusing because right off verse 11 it says, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. If he does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. Or if a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. The question is, who is he? Who is that talking about? Well, if you go on, he's bent his bow and prepared it. Talks about preparing deadly weapons. In verse 14, without a pause, behold, he travails with wickedness. And he conceives mischief. In Psalm 7, God is a righteous judge who only acts righteously. There's not even a, a providential sense in which God is conceiving mischief. And so, back and forth, the question is, do we connect this to verse 11, or do we connect it to verse 14? And I, I personally, I don't really have preference, because I think it means the same thing either way. If God is the one, in verses 12 and 13, preparing deadly weapons against the unrepentant, which will later be judged in verse 16, or if man is preparing his weapons for them to just fall back on him in verse 16. You still have the same judgment in the same God. Or whether it be 
through heavenly storehouse of wrath being described here were ironic judgment upon sinful men. God is still righteously judging the wicked. And so, in verse 12, if we understand it to be speaking about God, and it says, if a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and prepared it. He has also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. If we understand God to be readying the armory of heaven against the unrepentant, we understand the foolishness of these men. That those who slander the anointed of God, those who speak against Yahweh's people, are storing up wrath for themselves in the day of judgment. And we read that in Romans. That those who continue in unrepentance are storing up these arrows and these deadly weapons that on the last day, maybe in this life, will be fired against the ungodly. Or if a man is continuing in unrepentance, continuing to go about his way preparing weapons against the Lord's people, preparing blasphemies against God, and continuing in sin. It's only for the sake of them falling back on Him and judging Him when all things will be judged according to Christ. So we had a righteous prayer that righteousness would be done, that the Lord's name would not be undone in how David was treated. We have the verdict and the righteous judge, verse 6 through 11, and 12 through 16, his judgment against the ungodly. That Cush and Shimei are nothing to the Lord. That he's not only angry with them, like we said, there's not just condemnation for him, but there's also anger against him. And that anger leads to judgment. And that anger leads to an execution of that verdict. There's not a sense in which God will be angry just for the sake of being angry. And there's not a sense in which God will judge just to judge. But God will judge, be angry, and execute his anger against the ungodly. So the slanderers of David have no chance against the Lord. And if any unrepentant man be found here today, please understand that. Do not reject the grace of God, the forbearance of God, that ought to lead you to repentance. All men have their excuses. Well, it's what I know. I know too much. I don't feel like God would take me. Or I'm good. I don't need God. God's an imagination. And with the authority of God 
in the scriptures. That is a lie. There is no sense in which these truths fail to relate to you. All of us in this room are directly tied to this God, one way or the other. In one sense, if you are unrepentant, and if you do not find yourself in Christ, the reality of God's wrath against you holds not just in the future, but today. God is angry with you today. It's not that you've upset Him. It's not that you've done a little wrong. It's that God has judged you and found you guilty today. And there is no sense in which you can escape the judgment of God. And I don't stand up here as an actor or as somebody to wave their hands around and speak loud. But I speak loudly and I wave my hands around because I fully believe that. That today God is angry with the wicked. That this isn't just a reality that those who are found righteous worship God for. But this is a reality that the unrighteous stand under daily. Has God not done enough for sinners? Has he not expressed his love enough to you that he sent his son, that he gives you breath, that you have many blessings, that you stand healthy today? Maybe you have a family, you have friends who love you. Whatever it is, has God not shown his grace to you enough? Don't run from that. Do you see the judgment of God in 12 through 16? That all your sins will only return upon your own head. That all your running will only come back to you. It's as if you run your whole life and you, you see a way out and you run towards this light or whatever it is, and you keep running, you keep running, you keep running, and then you reach a dead end, and God is standing there to judge you. You realize in your whole life you've only run against God to reach Him and to stand before a righteous judge, when all the while He has extended His hand to an obstinate person, where there is nothing keeping you from repentance except your own Arrogance. God is extending His hand to sinners today. Praise God for that. But please, if you find yourself unrepentant, come to Christ. Today is the day of salvation. As Spurgeon once said, that's not tomorrow. It's not when you go home and think about it. That's not in a few minutes. That's not after you talk to somebody. That is now is the acceptable time, and today is the day of salvation. What has God kept from you to keep you from repentance? And on the other hand, 
we might ask, how, if we were children of wrath, has this judgment been avoided? Has God offered cheap grace and thrown his judgment away and all his arrows and his sword? Has he put it away for the sake of people he prefers or something? No. Because as children of wrath, and as we continued to run against God, and as we continued in sin and unrepentance, God did sharpen his sword. God did bend his bow and prepare it. He prepared deadly weapons and he made arrows fiery shafts. And the storehouse of heaven's wrath was ready to come upon you. But when you believed in Christ, it fell upon him. In Romans 3, after speaking about the judgment of God in chapter 1 and 2, says, for all have sinned, verse 23, and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith for a demonstration of his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. His wrath did not get thrown away. His wrath did not decrease. But Christ bore that wrath for you. That, that sword that was sharpened went into his son. That those arrows on fire went into his son. And your faith in his son is counted to you as righteousness. God is not cheap. God did not fail to execute a just judgment. God was perfectly holy and righteous and that you as a sinner are counted as righteous because of his son. Because all who have faith in Christ are counted as righteous. The righteousness of his life, the penalty of the law, and the justification of his resurrection all completed for you, that through faith it would be counted to you as your very own. And so in verse 17 of Psalm 7, David says, I will give thanks to Yahweh according to his righteousness and I'll sing praise to the name of Yahweh Most High. We are to be thankful for the wrath of God. Not because we like anger. Not because we like judgment. But because we love the righteousness of God. That we love who our God is. 
that in all, <coughs> in all of his judgment, in all of his grace, in all of his anger, and in all of his providence, we give thanks to Yahweh for who he is according to his righteousness, knowing that in all things the Lord will do right. That in all things, God will not forsake his character and his judgment or his justification. This last little phrase, and we'll sing praise to the name of Yahweh Most High. Two things. This sing praise, excuse me, It's another form of the word for psalm, where David is psalming Yahweh. This is what psalms are all about, or the character of God. He says, who will psalm the name of Yahweh Most High, Yahweh El Elyon, Yahweh the Most High God, none above him and none before him that all bow to him, that in the last day there will be no judge of Yahweh, no law above him, but all things in subjection to him. And so this morning, we understand that righteousness is not just for Christ. Righteousness is not just something that Christ fulfilled But he has granted us who are in him the opportunity to walk in righteousness through his spirit. That the elders, they're not here today, can say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That Christ in our leaders is what we ought to imitate that Christ's walking in obedience to God should be the call of the leaders and should be the call of those who are led. And may it be that in every situation we would be above reproach because this world is not getting any better. The world, I'm sure you saw during COVID, Sorry, I'm losing my voice. <clears throat> Likes to zoom in on the church. There became this weird preoccupation with whatever the church was doing during COVID. Because we didn't love people enough, or we didn't love our brother, or we didn't appreciate the government or Joe Biden enough. In those moments, the Lord doesn't send us a letter say, heads up, you need to put your best on. We continue, as we learned in 1 Peter, we just continue living the way we're called to. Those who have faith in Christ are to imitate Christ. Because as things get worse, should persecution rage and flame, 
we ought to still trust in Christ. We ought to live out of that appreciation for the verdict God has given on our behalf because of Him. We ought to worship God for who He is and stand under no other. And we're not alone in that. So many times you hear really good sermons about living righteously and you just feel like garbage at the end of them and you're like, wow, I'm really convicted by the Spirit and I have no help at all. (laughs) In the church, we have so much help from one another. We have so much help that we can bear the burdens of one another. That your burden in laying off this sin that's entangling you and leaving behind something in your past and leaving a certain group of people for the sake of living for Christ is not just something that you do on your own, but as part of this church, we have one another to encourage, to rebuke, and to love. And praise God for that. We are called to righteousness, to represent Christ as the body of Christ in the world, And we have everything given to us through His Spirit, His Word, and His Church to do so. And if you're slandered, if you feel forsaken in your circumstances, you feel like you don't know why things are the way they are, you're worried, you're nervous or anxious, Remember who your God is and worship Him for who He is. Because whatever it is the Lord has provided, He has shown love to you daily. And in Christ, He has granted all things to you. And so church, take hold of those things and those promises and the gifts that he's given us. Because they will not fail. Christ will not fail. And Lord willing, by the power of the Spirit, we would not fail. And if any man or woman find himself not believing today, not trusting in Christ, come to We all struggle. We all have difficulty. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. But don't run from God and reject Him as if He has not been extending His hand to you your whole life. So praise God for who He is in all of His glory his love, his kindness toward his people, and his wrath against ungodliness. Because in it, we see the significance and righteousness of Christ. And what a wonder and gift of grace that it is that we would be counted as righteous because of him. Amen.